Welcome to the Scaling Tech Podcast, where we help you manage your growing engineering team. Through expert interviews, we help you navigate the challenges of leading, hiring, growing, and nurturing your tech team to deliver the value your customers demand. Brought to you by agilityfeet.com, experts in staffing engineering teams in Latin America for clients globally. Welcome to the Scaling Tech Podcast, the podcast for leaders of growing software engineering teams. I'm Aaron Syme, here with my co-host, David Alfaro. This is Hello. our 30th episode of the Scaling Tech Podcast, which means it's the end of season three, time for another season recap. David, what did you think of season three? It was amazing. It, it has, um, it had a, a very high level uh angles i mean different angles about i mean different angles about high level issues when you are growing your company mm-hmm. um, i mean what happens from the security perspective once you're getting uh when you're going big now i mean right when your market share is growing uh, what happens with uh the the infrastructure when you're when your company is growing, when your product is growing and, and requiring more complexity, what happens when you're scaling and you are now you are the manager of managers or, or you have managers of managers and the th- right. things like that. So it is it's very diverse and, and, and we cover a, a, a very ample a, a range of concerns regarding scaling. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I think this was a really interesting set of guests that we had this season. I really enjoyed it. And so as we've done before, we pause on every 10th episode of the Scaling Tech Podcast, do a little recap of what we've learned from our most recent guests. So in this episode, we'll include a clip from each of our guests this season covering episodes 21 through 29, and then talk a little bit about each episode before moving on. And so first up is leadership coach, Jen Derry, who joined us in episode 21 to discuss mentoring and first time managers. So I think that the best thing a manager of managers could do is to provide stability, show up for the one-on-ones, hold space for what they're frustrated with or anxious about and appreciate what they're doing well. You know, I mean, this is like ad nauseum feedback conversation stuff, but don't only say when things are not well, they also give plus one, plus one to things that are going well so that they know to continue that behavior. And it is possible that they will not confide in you for a while. They might be like, no, it's all looking good. It's all looking good because they don't want to be seen as an imposter and they don't want their boss to know that actually they're really anxious about it. But that's where the trust building work comes in. Leadership coach Jen Derry is founder of Plucky, where she works with individuals and companies to create healthy dynamics at work. I was definitely inspired by Jen sharing with us some of her personal challenges with postpartum depression and then facing brain surgery and how those challenges changed her views of professional life and what she calls adult development. Uh, And she talked with us about how hard it can be for a new manager to adapt to their new role. And uh, David, you also had a great conversation with her about the role of, of the emotions at play in that and setting boundaries mm-hmm. in how we deal with those at work. What did you think of this conversation with Jen? What did you take away from it? It was about being, uh, how to take 
the fact that we are humans and we have a particular nature when we are uh, uh, dealing with um, the challenges of, 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 of being humans, <laughs> uh, where encompasses more than doing the job that we have to do. Right. So, uh, so that was quite interesting. And it is like we, we are experiencing, and, and she is, I think, a good uh, thought leader in that area. I mean, we are experiencing a, a, a transition towards that, um, toward a transition towards productivity, where you understand that if you want to be productive and you want to deliver work, um, taking care of how your people feel it is important. And feelings in this case are how the values of your company are aligned with the values of your people. Right. Um, I, and I love that very much. Uh, so the, the, the insight that, that we have here is that when managing managers, which is, is which is which was the topic that we were dealing with this conversation. Oh, well, managers with staff and managers with managers. The, right. the point that I remember clearly is that focus more on empowerment than evaluation. I mean, it is not that you don't do your own evaluation about mm -hmm. the, the situation and the person that is uh, uh, that you have. It is that when you're having the communication, you are communicating more empowerment than evaluation. <laughs> uh, and I love that because what we want to do is to nurture their growth. Yeah. Um, uh, and always to remember to express sincere appreciation for their efforts and acknowledge mm -hmm. their strengths. So, I mean, that perspective, uh, I, I really like that. And she made a, ve a good case about why to do, keep doing that and how to keep doing it in the future. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, when you move from, you know, as people often do as they move into management, maybe say moving from an engineering position into an engineering management position, one of those skills that they have to adapt uh, in themselves, they have to improve on perhaps is kind of their their emotional IQ, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, right? And so I think that this conversation with Jen talked about a lot of things like that. And yeah, it was, it was really great to, to start the season by exploring how we as engineering leaders can be mentoring the people who work for us. And especially when we reach the position of being a manager of managers, mentoring those new managers as well. Well, next up in episode 22, we spoke with George Dinwiddie, author of Softer Estimation Without Guessing. Well, the, the worst thing that can happen is, um, you know, you, you, you estimate how much work it's gonna be for something that you're just getting ready to start. And then someone says, okay, we've got this estimate, we'll call that a plan and, and we're gonna expect it to, to follow that estimate. Well, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not realistic. Uh, plans are built on estimates, yes. But one thing that a plan has that an estimate doesn't is it has uh, contingency buffers. Uh, David, as you know, I definitely have a love-hate relationship with software estimation, and that's come up a few times in our discussions on the Scaling Tech podcast. I personally, I, I really dislike how estimates are uh, inappropriately used by management, sometimes as bludgeons to beat down a team. Uh, and, and yet at the same time, as much as I dislike them and how we abuse estimates, I'm also fascinated by the psychological biases that we all face uh, that factor into how we make estimates uh, and, and how we fail at them so often too. So I guess you could say that in this episode with George, 
we dove deep into some of my fears <laughs> about right. self-estimation. What did you think about our conversation with George? Uh, talking with him made me do a lot of introspection. Uh, no, no, let me put it this other way. I, I had feelings. So, <laughs> so and something I've learned with my therapist is that, is that <laughs> when you have a feeling, stop and give the feeling an audience. So that was, <laughs> so when I gave the audience while we were talking with him, I, 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 I realized that I still had ingrained in me uh, being apologetic when giving an estimate with buffers. Mm. I, I felt that. I mean, it is like a a, um, a remnant of of our own thinking because, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, when we freely and openly discussed unapologetically, is like like I mean, is it don't rely don't don't rely on the estimates in the first uh, uh, pass of estimates that you get. You know, build right. in buffers. I mean, yeah. build resilience into your projects by banking in buffers up front. And that's fine. And that yeah. reflects reality. And you can do business with that. And you have predictability doing that. And everything works. Yeah. Uh, so it was a, a, a therapy. I mean, an intervention. <laughs> I felt good. I felt good. <laughs> I don't know if George realized he was our therapist in that episode. But uh, no, I agree. I mean, I think it's just, I think that's a really great observation, David. I mean, it's just part of being a pragmatic Mm -hmm. uh, responsible manager, mm -hmm. right? To understand that, you know, even, even when a team is doing their best efforts and giving estimates, um, yeah, as George said in the quote uh, we played here, the difference between a plan and an estimate is that a plan has contingency buffers and mm -hmm. uh, that's okay, as you said. <laughs> so now moving on to episode 23, we talked with author Kelly Shortridge about their book, Security Chaos Engineering. So actually, you just doing your job, you can relate a lot. All you have to think about is that alternate perspective of like, okay, this system I'm working on and I've like written code for it, how would I try to take it offline? Like, how could I hold it ransom if I was like really mad at my employer one day? Um, you know, how would I, if I, you know, got access to service A, but I really wanted access to like service C that had customer data, how would I get there? Like if I were just like a rogue developer, you're going to get really close to the attacker mindset that way. And that's what you want, because ultimately attackers have bosses and budgets. They think about ROI. They're going to take the easiest path they can to get to their goal. They're not going to do the crazy like multiple zero days chain together and, you know, all of that stuff. So as long as you're thinking about kind of the obvious ways, like if you're a lazy developer, you would be able to like pivot in your own system and attack it probably you're going to eliminate a lot of the low hanging fruit. And so that's something I'm hoping empowers a lot of engineering leaders is like, Hey, maybe we can start just thinking about this as part of our like architecture and design thinking too. I really enjoyed this conversation and the perspective that Kelly brings security should not be an obstacle to good software development. It should be a, a subset and a key part of good, good software development. But it hasn't always been presented that way in corporate environments and teams and security is too often uh, siloed as someone else's responsibility, even worse, often at the end of the product development life cycle. So I, I enjoyed in this conversation how Kelly shared a lot of great insight about software resilience. And David, you also delved into quite a bit of philosophy with Kelly in this conversation, too, which I enjoyed. Uh, yeah. 
we can leave the, the philosophical conversation to the to the uh, to the episode. Uh, I mean, it was <laughs> it, it, it was intense and uh, it was uh, interesting, really interesting. I enjoyed how Kelly emphasized or uh, let me embrace a new perspective about security, about resilience, yeah. uh, basically to strengthen uh, or to or to get more resilient from a security point of view, make a habit of thinking like an attacker. Right. <laughs> that was fantastic. Brilliant. Is there, and the fact that there are a lot of hanging, low hanging fruits that if you go and, and take all those low hanging fruits, you're going to be in a tremendously better position than, than the rest of the industry. Just doing that. Right. Right. Um, and uh, schedule regular brainstorming sessions to imagine how you will get uh, attacked. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, 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 and we discussed this, that now the attacking industry is, 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 is maturing. So you can go to, to a place like, uh, like, like a website and you, you just fill a form uh, and you give the target and how much you are, are, able to, uh, are willing to pay and, and all of that. Right. So it is serious. It's serious. It's happening. <laughs> so um, uh, the, the advice is don't rely just only the technical experts uh, uh, or yeah. opinion. Just get, I mean, get perspectives from all from all uh, from everybody in the company and turn these vulnerability assessments into concrete improvements. Um, that was fantastic. I mean, it is, a, it was a very good episode. Yeah. Yeah. It really was a great conversation. And yeah, I think that point was, was so critical too, that she talked about in this quote, you know, we want to cover as many of the edge cases in security as possible, but I, people get overwhelmed by that or thinking about it as someone else's responsibility. They miss that low hanging fruit as, as Kelly mm -hmm. said, and as you said, mm -hmm. and so just getting through that is, is super important. Well, now, David, in episode 24, we spoke with a former grad school professor of mine, Dr. Barbara Wixom, and she shared with us a lot of insights on data monetization from her new book, Data is Everybody's Business. Selling, sure, you can sell data sets. I mean, that's one way to do that. Honestly, I find that very unappealing for most organizations because these days our data can offer um a lot of competitive advantage. Um, you know, our, our data reflects understanding that is distinct to us as an organization. Why would we give that away, right? Instead, we should we should keep that and we should be using it again, monetizing it in different ways for, for gain. And so in addition to selling data sets, we can use data analytics and we can improve work. We can improve operations, lower our cost structure, improve the products that we're selling to, to increase our sales. We talked with Barb about the different ways that you can monetize data by improving, wrapping, or selling data. And as Barb makes clear in this clip we just played, selling is often the least attractive way to monetize your data, even though that may be the one we all first immediately think of. And I, I really like how her book and our conversation with Barb is about encouraging engineering managers to consider new ways that they can make strategic improvements to the customer experiences and increase business value from their existing data assets. What did you think of this conversation, David? 
she wanted to make a, uh, she was passionate about at a specific point uh, regarding monetizing your data. And she wanted to make this point very clear and to resonate for eternity. It's like, <laughs> rather than rushing to sell your data as the only way that you can think of right. um, to make money, Take time to fully assess how it could strengthen your competitive position first. Mm -hmm. I mean, try to find ways to improve your service, your product, uh, your operations to lower costs, um, uh, boost sales. That, that's the way that you actually make a lot of money out of the data that you already have. Right. Uh, it is, and and, and, and uh, tourism, uh, I think that the, 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 the justification that she, and I mean, the, the good point that she makes is that uh, it is so easy to, to first think uh, trying to sell my data uh, because it's the easiest and uh, maybe the laziest way to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and, and, and she says, is, is this, what I'm encouraging you to do is to have a long-term approach that will allow you to extract more value from your data. Uh, kind of quick sale. Yeah. So yeah. it's good. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've, I've known Barb for a long time, as we talked about uh, in the episode. And I've never known anyone more passionate about data uh, <laughs> than, than Barbara Wixom. Uh, so, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. And, and yeah, there's so much we get uh, lost, I think, as engineering managers and managing the day to day operations of, of the applications we develop, of the business units we work with, that we sometimes forget, look over that amount of data that we have about the way that we work internally, things that we could be more efficient about and improve from the, and glean from the data that we have, as well as data about our customers. And yeah, it's absolutely not about, you know, there are cases where selling data is fine. And she talks about acceptable data use policies and things like that to help guide you in those scenarios. But but there's a lot more to monetizing data than selling for sure. So this was a great conversation. In episode 25, we talked about AI and the future of work with Vijay Parthasarathy, who is the head of AI at Zoom. The AI companion today, uh, for example, can summarize a meeting, take notes, uh, find all the action items, can send you an email at the end of the uh, meeting, right? An email and a chat message at the end of the meeting, um, which... People used to do, there used to be, um, I mean, there, there are still people who take notes. Uh, so the, this enables people to have um, real-time conversation, focus on the conversation rather than like taking notes and stuff like that. And uh, I would highly recommend using it. It's pretty, pretty cool. Um, and uh, it's more accurate uh, nowadays. Um, and the second part of it is like, let's say you, you are late to a meeting. Um, you can use AI companion uh, and uh, query what happened in the meeting um, and uh, without interrupting people, right? So, uh, hey, wait, everyone, stop your discussion. I want to know what happened, right? So <laughs> you can rather ask AI companion to explain you what happened. Um, and uh, these features will help you be more productive and be more engaged in a meeting. Now, in season two of the Scaling Tech podcast, we talked about remote work a couple of times with our guests. And now in the second half of 2023, as we've been recording season three, 
We've seen some companies roll back their support of remote work. Major companies, including Zoom, have tried to call people back to the office in at least a hybrid fashion. Now, as for me personally, I mean, we've always worked remote in Agility Feed and WebRTC mm -hmm. Ventures. Uh, I don't see remote work going away, but I do see all of this as a stabilization of how much work we do remotely and how much mm -hmm. we do in person. But facilitating remote work is only one aspect of what modern video conferencing tools do. And so that's what I found in interesting about this episode, uh, this conversation, because by building AI in to a video conferencing tool, these tools can now dramatically improve the efficiency of our work. And that ability like, to take a transcript from a conference call, identify key topics and decisions made, use that information in your overall business workflow uh, is really fascinating to me. I'm excited to see our video application work at WebRTC Ventures expand into these areas as well. Uh, at some of the conferences I've gone to uh, this year, I've seen tech executives from Amazon and Google and elsewhere talk about these concepts. And so I also really enjoyed hearing uh, uh, from Vijay about Zoom's perspective on the future of work. What about you, David? What do you see as the future of AI and work? I am already living it. Is um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and we, we, uh, and we see some some specific benefits that are incredible to that will be incredible to imagine even five years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, to give you to give you an example, sometimes. Uh, I mean, take the example of someone that has concentration problems, let's say. Okay. And, and imagine a company where we have consent from, from I mean, for, uh, I mean, we are in a video, in a, in a, in a, in a video where we are going, we are going to discuss uh, something important about the work we do. Uh, let's, yeah. And, and we have consent to record all mm -hmm. the videos, let's say, or consent to um, transcribe what is going on. Mm -hmm. and, and, and by the way, Zoom makes that explicit. It's like, mm -hmm. hey, hey, for you to know, we are, we are either we are recording this or we are right. transcribing this, right? Right. Uh, so that's good. That's, that's good. That's transparency. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like it, you can raise your voice at that specific moment. Uh, but once we have that, then we have the ability to transcribe in real time the meeting and we have enough AI power now so we can uh, even translate in real time. And, and that feature is uh, uh, in Zoom right now. I mean, the translation, mm -hmm. uh, I think it is in beta, uh, I think. But, but that is so important because with the transcription and translation, uh, uh, now, and then again, with consent, <laughs> we can right. have, uh, we can have a AI tool to, to have a summary of what is going on. And we can interact with that, uh, AI instance. So we can ask questions. I mean, I do this. I like to do this. I ask, uh, as, like, I mean, he mentioned the, the concentration problem because I have that issue. So uh, it is so useful when I have like an assistant that can tell mm -hmm. me, uh, I can uh, reach out to, uh, to know where the conversation is going. <laughs> uh, 
And that is very useful, not only for the summary to, to share with the rest of the people. Um, and, and, and the last part I want to make this so useful is that when I have these other tools, the, these AI tools, I, I have a favorite question to ask is, can you detect, can you detect a bias or a fallacy? <laughs> conversation. <laughs> and it is so useful to have that uh, that perspective is so useful uh, but but all of that is, is possible right now all the things right. that, that I just described are available to us with yeah. consent with consent yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with, with consent and, and you know in a lot of cases too kind of spread across different tools so you have to sort of mm -hmm. consciously pull them together and that's what's mm -hmm. you know part of what's interesting to me about this phase of, of work that we're entering with the help of AI is mm -hmm. as these things become more integrated. So, you know, mm -hmm. early adopters like you and I can piece together pieces and start to use these, you know, with a transcript after the call or, you know, in some cases, live, live summaries and transcripts mm -hmm. during the conversation, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But this is going to become more and more commonplace where you don't have to glue different pieces together to make it work as an early adopter. This is just going to be built in and, and certainly tools, you know, like zoom that, that have that type of, uh, market segment, uh, are, are, you know, are the ones who are going to start to ex show that capability to people who are not early adopters, right. Mm -hmm. Who, who mm -hmm. uh, are, are kind of taking the most popular tool out there and then, you know, letting it guide what they do. So that for a lot of people, that will be the first exposure to these things that, that we've already been playing with. And so that's interesting uh, to see how that rolls out and affects people's perspective on work mm -hmm. as they start to see what's what we're already mm -hmm. seeing is possible. And I'm glad you mentioned consent around that too, because that relates back to our previous episode with Favre Wixom about data monetization, because really like taking the transcript from a video or an audio conversation, now you've got text data, now you're mining that transcript for insights. That is a form, I think she would say, of data monetization, right? But when we think right. about data monetization, sort of more traditionally, we're thinking about, you know, oh, your purchase history in our e-commerce platform mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you're ready for a new pair of shoes because it's been a while since you bought a pair of shoes. You know, all those mm -hmm. all those things that like Instagram does a, a spooky good job of predicting I want to buy and the ads mm -hmm. it shows me. Right. But now we've got the capability to do that off of video and audio data sets too, not just things like purchase history. And so that's a whole nother aspect of as Barb said, acceptable data use policies and how that will also overlap with things like VJ talked about of the future of AI and work. So I think this is an incredibly interesting topic and sort of, mm -hmm. you know, continue to watch this space <laughs> for mm -hmm. all of you listening. There's a lot coming. Now, speaking of video applications, let's pause here for an ad break from our sponsor, WebRTC Ventures. Building custom WebRTC video applications is hard. But your go live doesn't have to be stressful. We thought we were ready to launch our video application, but we discovered it's a lot harder than we thought. Live video applications are not like building other web or mobile apps. Our team worked hard out there today, but we just didn't have all the right pieces. I'll tell you what we should have done. We should have brought in the live video experts from WebRTC Ventures. 
If you're building a live video application, then trust the experts at WebRTC.Ventures to help you design, build, test, deploy, and manage your custom-built application, or integrate live video into your existing application. Contact us today at WebRTC.Ventures. Okay, let's get back to our Season 3 review of the Scaling Tech Podcast. In episode 26, we spoke with Allison McMillan about engineering team health and offsites. I think that every aspect of an offsite should be looking to create deeper connections between individuals. And sometimes that happens through fun and sometimes that happens through sessions. Um, how it doesn't happen is when session after session is just sort of a presentation, a presentation, a presentation with a, any questions, uh, you know, the 10 minutes for any questions at the end. Um, but I think that, you know, you can design business sessions, um, you know, alignment sessions, et cetera, in ways that are really engaging in ways that encourage small group discussion, large group discussion, a whole bunch of different uh, modalities and ways to sort of get folks talking. And all of those create deeper connections. You don't just have to be like having fun. And I mean, those sessions can be fun. I've done like, I've done some sessions about communication or alignment or whatever that have been very fun. Um, but yeah, I think that those are sort of the main, the main components to look for in an offsite. But David, we've hosted a lot of team offsites over the years with our teams and clients at Agility Feed and WebRTC Ventures. We talked with Allison about what makes a good engineering team offsite. Regardless if your team works in the office or remote or hybrid, I think a well-designed offsite can really improve the connections, the collaboration in your team, uh, as Allison said in that clip we just played. And that leads to higher performing teams, which we all want. So another area we also talked with Allison about is how to assess the health of an engineering team which is important to us, not only for our teams, but also in how we work with our clients and our engineering staff augmentation contracts at Agility Feed. What did you think of the conversation with Allison? Yeah, the, the insight was that the idea of offsites is to, um, that everyone, not only the managers, but everyone can um, gain insights, strengthen relationships, build commitment mm -hmm. uh, to execute on the shared priorities. It's, it's an amazing moment to synchronize and align uh, priorities. I mean, it is like making clear that if we, if we align ourselves to this goal, we are going to be fine and we're going to be better and we're going to make a, a better world in a way. So um, a, a, that synchronization uh, is doesn't happen by itself. It needs of, um, an explicit direction uh, and a structure uh, that allows for those interactions to emerge. So uh, mm -hmm. she she gives a specific examples about how to start with an ice, icebreaker, uh, a team building activity, uh, just mm -hmm. to loosen up people, uh, how to facilitate a, a, a small group discussions, um, um, formats about the 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 uh, the. the 
the, the business conversations or the business sections to discuss in these activities. Uh, also, the social activities. Um, and, and one specific point that I love is, is it is how we introverts uh, <laughs> can survive in situations like this. <laughs> so right. we, we discussed that. Lovely conversation, lovely conversation. Yeah, it was absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I like how you you emphasize in your comments to the importance of designing these, and that's certainly something mm -hmm. Allison talked about. You know, I think back to some of the conversations we had around team culture and remote team culture in season two. We talked with some of our guests then about how important it is that you are deliberate about the culture that you want in your organization because culture is going to happen whether you want it to happen or not. So be deliberate about what you want it to look like, right? And mm -hmm. and the same is is true about team offsites in a couple of different ways. One is the way you structure this team offsite helps reflect your culture and determines the culture you want to have in your organization. So that's really important to be deliberate about what you want to come out of this, what sort of feelings, you know, and, and benefits to your team you want to come out of this. Um, and, uh, uh, but, but also to have that good offsite, you know, you're going to have to be delivered about what you want within it. So yeah, I thought this was a really great conversation with Allison. In episode 27, I spoke with Dr. Vladislav Yukas about his book, Site Reliability Engineering, a step-by-step -step guide to introducing site reliability engineering in software delivery organizations. And each potential rollout to production can cause an incident, or it can just happen that the services have been running for some time and then something changed and you need to respond. So that means that you need to be an organization that is ready to respond. So even if nothing happens for a prolonged period of time, you need to be ready to respond. So now when something happens, you need to then be able to roll out your incident response quickly. That means that you need to be able to mobilize people quickly and uh, you need to be able to mobilize the right people quickly so that there is um, a small number of people who are able to fix the incidents as soon as possible. Ideally, you caught it before the users actually saw it because your SLOs were set in the right way <laughs> and your SRE infrastructure then alerted you also in a timely, in a timely manner. Now, Davida, I know due to unforeseen incidents, you were unable to join me in this episode with Vlad, but I think the conversation I had with Vlad is very complimentary to the conversation we both had with Kelly Shortridge back in episode 23. So for anyone interested in quality, security, and reliability of software applications, and that probably should be everyone listening to the Scaling Tech podcast, I highly recommend both of these episodes. In particular, Vlad talked about how to define your service level indicators or SLIs and how those metrics feed into the service level objectives, which you set with your users and are abbreviated SLOs. You hear those acronyms a lot in this conversation, and, and but they're really about determining what you will measure and to what level of availability or, or other metric availability is just kind of one metric we might use. Uh, but to what level you are going to try and meet that metric, uh, what level is acceptable and how, and determining that is how you determine what to do when incidents occur. And one thing that both Kelly and Vlad agreed on is that incidents will happen. Uh, no, no software is perfect, right? There's gonna be security incidents, there's gonna be quality incidents, 
Uh, and so first recognizing that they'll happen. And with that recognition in mind, I liked about uh, how Vlad also talked about how you set an error budget uh, with your customers based on the SLOs that you agreed with them. So you've determined what you're going to measure, what's an acceptable level of quality for that metric, and that gives you a budget basically to frame those conversations with your customers, with your users around of, you know, yeah, the application is not perfect. Occasionally we run into issues, but are we meeting the level of objectives that we set with you? Uh, is that working? And if not, let's adjust the metrics. These things, you know, that was another interesting uh, important part of the conversation with Vlad is that all of this has to be iterative. Uh, iterative. We have to continue to improve uh, how we measure our metrics, continually revisit to what level we consider acceptable uh, for those metrics. So in short, if you've got an application in production, which again is probably everyone listening to the Scaling Tech podcast, I think this will be a really interesting uh, book from Vlad and an episode uh, to check out. Now, let's move on to episode 28, where we spoke with Jurgen Apollo, uh, who's written numerous books on agile management and innovation. We spoke with Jurgen primarily about scaling agile teams and his unfixed pattern for how to scale agile teams. I have a feeling that too often there are things not addressed because maybe you expect me uh, to fix things because let's face it, I am the face and the brand and, and, and I have the name and so on. So for a number of things, they were too hesitant to pick things up uh, as a team expecting that I would be guiding and leading actively. And I said, I don't want that. I, I, I cannot do everything for everyone. And it makes me very unhappy as well. So I deliberately stepped back even further and said, I don't want to even participate in the meetings anymore. You have them with each other. <laughs> um, just ask me when you want me to be there. And we are now two months uh, further and things have are so much better. Uh, they, they 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 thanked me in the retro just earlier this this week for thanks for stepping back and forcing us to uh, address the problems head on ourselves and we're having so much fun now and it's, uh, you see I wrote about this a long time ago in that quote Jurgen is speaking about the importance of stepping back as a manager in order to let your team shine and grow that spoke to me a lot personally it's a uh, it's also a theme of his unfixed pattern, which attempts to be less prescriptive than other agile scaling methods uh, and to be less dependent on multiple layers of management and processes. And so our conversation with Jurgen ranged from topics around the unfixed pattern, as well as topics from his uh, most famous book, Management 3.0. What did you think about our conversation with Jurgen? After the conversation, I, I, I kept thinking how important it is to uh, understand what are the what are the purpose of the advice we get from uh, thought leaders, and particularly how I was interested in her sorry in his opinions about coaching and empowerment, because yeah. I mean it is it is easy to to think that when we have those things those things we are able to grow and I, I mean and that's and that feels okay that that's that that feels like truth um but sometimes with uh, something that i dislike about this 
these terms is that they become uh, buzz buzzwords, right? Uh, and we forget why we need them. I mean, what <laughs> facts of reality uh, make us to think about empowerment? Yeah. And the facts of reality that makes us think about empowerment is that we, you want to grow your company and you want the the the, the people uh, that you manage to eventually to grow in a way so they can re they they can replace you. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. the point. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. <laughs> and and that's why it was so interesting the conversation because uh, we 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 discuss this a scenario where uh, we as as leaders we tend to, we, we may give the impression that our role is or that or that we are desperate to get problems to fix mm -hmm. and therefore the the role of the people we we lead is to give us problems yeah, to bring their problems to us <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to be solved uh, yeah, right. and now we now we have work. <laughs> we can solve it. Uh, so we discussed that. It is like if we are not careful, we are fostering that culture that is not conducive to scale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. at all. Yeah, so if yeah. if if so, so let's change that. Let's 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 find opportunities when a problem arises, and we are we. Take an attitude of, of careful, uh, careful hands off, and we mm -hmm. let them to resolve the problem by themselves. And, right. the, and, and, and the point that we were making in that conversation is part of behaving in a resilient and flexible and agile way is that we we are budgeting this this time so yeah. that the team members can have the time to by themselves try different things and by themselves solve the issues you are observing your hands off but you're observing and taking care of 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 of, of uh constraints uh, but let them do it because that's the only way they actually grow uh, <laughs> i love that 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 train of thought was fantastic yeah yeah absolutely yeah i like that i mean one of the things i remember bringing up with jurgen in this episode was uh, uh something he'd written about he called the agile blind spot of an assumption mm -hmm of, uh, could be said about a lot of agile methodologies. I think even broader, it could be said about any sort of process methodology is that we, uh, we, we tend to think that if we come up with the perfect process and follow it perfectly, then we're therefore going to have, you know, perfect teams or perfect products as a result, but you still have to also develop great teams within that process, you know, and regardless of the process that you're using, that's really important too. And so I think, you know, like the way Jurgen approaches scaling agile teams and, and his unfixed pattern is kind of a healthy way to, to question the assumptions of, of everything, of, of other scaling uh, methods. Right. Uh, and to sort of question, are we, are we allowing the team to be empowered and grow in an agile way? Because that's really, really important to scaling. Or are we just enjoying that role as a manager of solving other people's problems and creating our little fiefdoms, which is not really going to help the organization grow. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, well, David, in episode 29, we're to the last episode of the season three. We pulled a guest back to us from the archives. We brought back 
Dan Vacanti, who was our very first guest on the Scaling Tech podcast back in episode two. But not just Dan, joining Dan was also Pratik Singh. And they spoke with us about their podcast, Drunk Agile, as well as a number of topics around probabilistic forecasting and Kanban. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you talk to developers, uh, they, they see Agile as either either just something on the side that's happening or, or, or really something that's getting in their way of getting work done. And I think we need to figure out how to roll that back. And same for the engineering leaders. I mean, the thing that, that engineering leaders are really concerned about, in my opinion, in my experience, is uh, are we predictable enough? Are we efficient enough? Are we delivering the right things? You know, the, the questions that, that teams are asked, um, you know, things like, when will it be done? Um, you know, how much is this going to cost? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you think about when those questions are asked, uh, they're asked when the team has the least amount of information about the problem that they're they're trying to solve, right? They're they're asked when we 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 are confronted with a problem that is dominated by uncertainty, and the the, the way the world works this isn't just something that Pratik and I made up, right? It's just the way the world works. Whenever you have uncertainty involved, that demands a probabilistic approach. This conversation with Dan and Pratik makes a nice uh, bookend to the conversation we had with George Dinwiddie around software estimation back in episode 22. And a common thread of all these conversations is that everyone agrees we cannot predict the future perfectly. And everyone agrees, however, that uh, businesses need to make strategic decisions about the future. And those decisions usually require some kind of forecast. So the question is, how do you create that estimate? How do you frame that forecast when talking with business leaders? And I really appreciate the probabilistic framing that Pratik and Dan discussed with us. We need to give our clients or users an an estimate, but we also need to make clear how certain we are about that estimate, about the risk in it, which uh, was a word that Pratik, you know, definitely in particular really, really favors in this conversation, being able to communicate and discuss that risk that goes with that forecast. What did you think of this conversation, David? It was the last conversation. I mean, it was the last episode, and it was fantastic. Not only because we he had a good laugh uh, <laughs> in it. Uh, uh, it's like it was a good integration of many things that we were discussing in the other episodes, as you said. And it was a good mm-hmm. integration. Of the the this thing that, that you just said is um, the, there is a common thread here, and and I think that 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 we made it explicit in this episode is about predictability, mm-hmm. predictability. That's the thing. That's the thing that we want mm-hmm. without, without some sort of predictability. It is impossible to have a business. It is right. impossible for a human to do anything. Uh, it is impossible for, to have some sort of confidence that we're going to achieve anything without <laughs> <laughs> without Before we run out of money <laughs> right <laughs> right so so we talk explicitly about about predictability that's the entire uh a, a concern uh i mean that's the concern that that is underlying all the conversations that we had so far um and and how we in all this conversation is how we make models of reality so that so those models are have built-in 
the ability to to grasp more data about reality as time passes so we can have a better model so we can have better predictability um and and and, and again we have this explicit conversation with uh dan about that about uh, probabilistic uh forecasting and uh, uh and 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 <laughs> he was like uh, i'm sure you're gonna see that in in this episode i had a light but light bulb moment like a good integration <laughs> oh i can see that it, that was a very good moment for me uh right <laughs> a, a very emotional moment for me uh because i could see how kaman is is so powerful in 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 focusing you in 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 in, in, in get you grounded on that what we're building here is a is a predictable system yeah uh it is fantastic so he talked about that about um a forecasting about prioritization about estimation about uh the 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 different encocks inside the kanban system um mm -hmm. good 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 episode definitely yeah absolutely and dan and pratik are both very fun uh individuals to speak with and they were uh, uh, it was, it was a great conversation. Hopefully this doesn't show up in the, in the final product, uh, edited too bad, but we had all sorts of problems in recording this episode and talk about things you wouldn't predict. We couldn't have predicted. Right. We had to just roll with it. Uh, it ended up being a great conversation anyways. Um, but yeah, the, uh, you know, you, uh, you talked about models of reality. Well, unfortunately I have a, I have a reality for us and our listeners right now that, this brings us to the end of season three, but with a high degree of confidence, I forecast we will be back for season four. And in fact, we're already working on guests for season four. So if you'd like to suggest topics and guests for us for the next season, just go to scalingtechpod.com to make your suggestions. And while you're there, you can revisit our past episodes. So don't go anywhere. Make sure you're subscribed to the Scaling Tech Podcast on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. And while you're there, how about leaving us a review? Your review will help others to find us. And so if you have enjoyed these episodes, if like us, you've been learning a lot from our guests, then please subscribe, hit that like button, leave a five-star review for the Scaling Tech Podcast. Thanks for joining us for another season of the Scaling Tech Podcast. We'll see you again soon. See you. Thanks for joining us on the Scaling Tech Podcast, where we help you manage your growing engineering team. Brought to you by agilityfeet.com, experts in staffing engineering teams in Latin America for clients globally. For more information on today's episode and to submit your ideas for future guests, please visit scalingtechpod.com.